Today we continue our fifth week in a six-part series called Run Church Run. We're kind of following the first group of followers of Jesus through the book of Acts as they try to figure out who God is, where God is going, and what it means for them to follow him. Now, some of you are runners and some of you aren't. You can easily divide the group, uh, the world into those two groups of people. But I ran my first long distance race when I was in middle school. I was on the cross country team. And when you're running a long distance race and you're an average runner, all you need to do is wait for the gun to go off and then try to keep the fastest person in your sights. All you have to do is follow fast people. That works out great. If you're an average runner, I was a severely below average runner. I was slow. One time I went to the doctor with knee pain and he goes, are you running? I goes, yeah. He goes, you know, you don't have the body type for that. I'm like, what are you trying to say? <laughs> and and, and when, I was, when I was in middle school, I, I was not fast. So what I had to do oftentimes at the end of races, I would find myself alone in the back and there wasn't anybody to follow. And at that point, I was desperate for any sign of what they called the course markers. So sometimes there were flags. Sometimes there were arrows painted on the ground so that you knew that the course went this way because I didn't run to love that much. I did not want to take one step more than I needed to to get from the starting line to the finish line. Now, in the book of Acts, God tells the church where they are going to go. He does not tell them how he is going to bring them there. So the challenge for the early church is to be able to say, where is the next step on this course that God has us running? And many of us are asking the same question. We say, I I want to follow God. I want to be a part of what the church is doing in the world. I don't know what the next step is. In the book of Acts, God kind of lays out the finish line for the church. He says this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And I believe God sends people to specific places for strategic reasons. God starts with the city, Jerusalem. Then he expands to a region, Judea. The move from Jerusalem to Judea makes sense. Because the city is in the epicenter of the region that is the heartbeat of Jewish life and culture. But Samaria, Samaria makes less sense. For Jesus' disciples, Samaria would have been off limits. If you understand the history of Samaria, you understand that it was initially inhabited by Jews. But when the Assyrians that hated enemies of the Jews invaded from the north, over time, they started intermingling families and relations. So many pure Jews viewed the Samaritans as half-breeds and ethnic rivals. They also viewed them as heretics. Why? Because rather than worshiping at the mountain that God had ordained for worship, Mount Zion, the Samaritans had settled on, a, on what the pure Jews believed to be a lie, that they could worship God, they could build a temple at Mount Gerizim. So there was this tension between not only their ethnic heritage, but also the purity of their religious beliefs. Now, it's significant that the Jews and the Samaritans are like spiritual cousins because they both trace their lineage back to Moses and the laws that Moses wrote. It's not unlike Jews and Muslims today who trace a common lineage back to Abraham. Samaria is a spiritually open environment. The idea of a Messiah, of a Moses-type figure, is not foreign to them. And they're also open to and familiar with miraculous signs. We know this because we read this in Acts chapter 8. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. 
And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and, and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. I don't know how you don't get a big head when you've got great power of God on your business card, but that was, that was the Twitter handle that Simon was working with those days. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. The Bible's clear. There can be sources of supernatural power that are not God. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them, they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So let, let's be clear about this. The Samaritan converts, initially they are baptized, but they have yet to bear evidence that they have been filled by the Spirit. So the baptism declares their choice, their willingness to join the family of God, but the arrival of the Spirit declares the change that is happening within them. The Spirit moves in this city to confirm God's heart for the Samaritans. Now, Peter and John go because they can authenticate a move of God. They know what the Spirit falling on a group of new believers looks like. They had pioneered that whole model in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. Here's what's interesting. Out of all of the apostles that could have gone to Samaria, it is ironic that John is chosen to accompany Peter. Why? Because if you go backwards in the story, you look in the book of Luke, who we believe also wrote the book of Acts, there's an episode where Jesus and his followers arrive at a village in Samaria. And the villagers, when they find out that Jesus and his friends are headed to Jerusalem, the Jewish center, not the Samaritan center, they're so offended, they're like, yeah, you all have to leave. You can't be in here. And they reject Jesus and his friends. And John, in this moment of sweet, gentle compassion, asks Jesus this question, Lord, can I call down fire from heaven and destroy them? Like, because there's a story in the Old Testament where Elijah did just that. So John's like, hey, I'm part of Team Jesus. They don't like Jesus. Let's kill them all. This, that's how John operates. That, there's a reason that Jesus gave him the nickname Son of Thunder. If John had been alive today, he would have been a professional wrestler. You know what I'm saying? So John, isn't it ironic that of all the people who could go back and affirm that God loves the Samaritans, that God is for the Samaritans, that God is affirming his welcoming of the Samaritans, that who gets a front row seat to that show? John does. And so God sends Peter and John, and John, this guy who just years before had been wanting to lift up his hands to rain down fire, is now laying his hands on his new brothers and sisters in the family of God, welcoming them home. When the gospel gets a hold of your heart, you will find yourself miraculously loving the people that you used to hate. What happened when the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit? We don't know. But whatever it was, was so dynamic, was so obvious, that everybody who was watching, both the Jews from Jerusalem and both the local Samaritans said, Some, something undeniably God is happening here. And I think the reason that God chose to do it that way is because people had been so misled by the miracles of Simon, they needed a new miracle to counteract that. Now, 
I grew up in a Pentecostal church. I was also baptized Baptist. I've lived a very confused theological life. <laughs> there are two kind of schools of thought. Some people say, man, if you do not see a miracle where something loud is happening, the Holy Spirit didn't show up. There's another school of thought that says, you know what? Those miracles were for that time and for that season. You know how we know the Holy Spirit showed up? We know the Holy Spirit showed up by the resulting fruit in your character. That you become a person of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. That's how we know that the Holy Spirit showed up. So you have some people say, hey, the Spirit is real if there's fire. And other people say, no, the Spirit is real if there's fruit. You know what I think the answer is? I think the answer is yes. I think that when the Holy Spirit shows up, there are dynamic events that we cannot explain. And at the same time, there is resulting fruit in our lives. And I, I have seen people of amazing Christ-like character who have not yet tapped into the dynamism of the power of God. And I think God wants more for them. I have also seen people who have signs, wonders, prophetic words, upside down and backwards, but they're not people of integrity and honor and character. And I think God has something more for them too. So I believe that when we are people who, when we ask for a move of the spirit, what are we asking for? We're asking for people who look more like Jesus than they did before. And we are looking for dynamic, undeniable expressions of the kingdom breaking through into our current circumstances. God always sends people to strategic places for specific reasons. God sends Philip, Peter, and John to Samaria because it is a spiritual city. But God isn't done after moving among Jews in Judea and Samaritans in Samaria. Later in the story, we read of Peter having a vision about a sheet with clean animals being lowered before him. And what God is saying to Peter in that vision is he lowers down the sheet of animals and every animal that is in the sheet, that's in this blanket that's being lowered down by four corners, is an unclean animal according to Jewish kosher laws. And the voice says to Peter in the dream, get up, Peter, kill these animals and eat them. And Peter says, of course, never, Lord. I spent my whole life observing the dietary laws. I would never eat something that you have called unclean. This vision happens three times. Whenever God really needs to kind of get a message through to people, he usually says it three times. And then God says this to Peter. He goes, Peter, don't you ever call anything unclean that I have called clean. And then he says this, Gentiles, not Jews, people that you have been forbidden to interact with by your culture, they're coming to this house tomorrow. I want you to go with them because something's gonna happen on the other side of that. You know why it's interesting that God chose that town to speak to Peter about reaching people that weren't on his radar? Because Joppa is the very town where some of you are familiar with a guy named Jonah, the story of the big fish. Jonah, Jonah went to Joppa to run away from the people that God was calling him to reach, people that he didn't know, people that he didn't understand, people that he didn't like. So Jonah got it wrong in Joppa, and Peter gets it right. So the next day, sure enough, men representing a Roman military officer, a man of high standing, a man named Cornelius. And they say, uh, will, you, will you please come to our house? Our boss had a vision from God that told us to come and find you. So the next day, Peter started out with those men. They begin the 33-mile walk from Joppa down the coast to Caesarea. And some of the members from Joppa went along. And the following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man like myself. Now, if you're not careful, you will just skip right over 
what happens at the beginning of verse 25. It says, as Peter entered the house. Remember in his dream, Peter says, Lord, I have never eaten anything that you said is unclean. In Jewish culture, for you to be under the same roof as Gentiles was a violation of your ritual purity. So for Peter to enter the house, for him to take that one step across the threshold was a barrier-breaking move. It was like American astronauts taking the first step on the moon. This was a big deal. And you wonder if Peter was hesitating for a moment at the threshold saying, once I cross this line, there's no going back. Once I cross this line, there are people in my own camp, Jewish friends back in Jerusalem who might not talk to me anymore. Uh, this could be the end of my career if I take this risk and engage people who are far from God, but I'm gonna do it anyway. Because the Lord's made it clear that that's what I should do. And then we read this. Peter began to speak. He says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. And he doesn't. But accepts, accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. Jesus is speaking to a Roman military audience. They knew what crosses did well. They'd crucified other people on them before. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. And by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God has appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came upon all who heard the message. That is a preacher's greatest dream and nightmare. Because Peter had a whole thing that he was going to do. And God interrupted the thing early. You know, Peter never gave an invitation. Peter didn't give an altar call. He's like, hey, here's the thing you got to accept. You got to believe. You got to confess. You got to have you raise your hand. You got to have you walk down the aisle to the front of the room. None of that happens. God's like, hey, Peter, I'm, you're done. They heard it. I'm ready. Let's get, let's get this party going. The Holy Spirit falls on them as he is preaching. And the circumcised believers who had come with Peter, that means the Jews, were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. It shows how condescending they were from the get-go. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. So look at what happens here. The Caesareans are filled with the Holy Spirit, but not yet baptized. Again, the baptism declares the choice. The Spirit declares the change. And I believe that the Spirit moves in Caesarea to confirm the legitimacy of the Gentile conversion of the Jews. And we know this because of verse 45. The circumcised believers were astonished that the gift had been poured out even on the Gentiles. 
The Jews received the gift of tongues in Jerusalem. Now the Gentiles receive it in Caesarea. There's no evidence that the Samaritans spoke in tongue, but the Caesareans do. Why? Maybe it's because the cultural gap between the Jews and Gentiles was greater than the one between the Jews and the Samaritans. But when the message of Jesus comes to an influential house in an influential city, the spiritual dynamic shifts. God always sends people to strategic places for strategic reasons. I want you to think about this one word for a moment. It said the circumcised believers were astonished. Like they were completely floored that God was publicly announcing to them and everybody in that town that the Gentiles, the Romans, belonged to God too. Belonged to God too. Let me ask you this question. Who in your neighborhood would you be astonished if the Holy Spirit fell on them? Like, who do you know that you go, hey, if there's anybody on this block who is the last person to be touched by the power of God, it's that guy. Keep, keep that answer in mind. What group of people in this town would blow a fuse in your brain if a powerful move of the Holy Spirit came and dropped on them? One more. What group of people in the world, so we're gonna zoom out, your, your neighborhood, this city, the world. If there are a group of people in this world that tomorrow there was YouTube footage that uh, they had been overwhelmed by the Spirit of God and every last one of them was volunteered to get baptized, which group would that be? Everybody have answers? Good. Because those are people that God cares about. And those are people that God intends to reach. And if we are not prepared to reach them with God, we might forfeit our front row seat to the expansion of the kingdom in our zip code in our lifetime. And God did something special for Peter. He goes, Peter, something is coming that you in your flesh, you in your human eyes, you in your limited understanding would not be able to appreciate. So I'm going to do a favor. I'm going to set you up. I'm going to paint a picture. I'm going to connect all these dots for you so there's no mistaking that this is what I'm about to do. That's what I want for us. I want us to be a church that's connecting with Jesus so regularly, so openly, so humbly, that if he needed to give us a vision to remind us that there are people that are not on our radar, people that we don't know exist, or people that we do and don't like and don't care about, that Jesus would say this to us, the very same way he said to Peter, do not call unclean anybody that I have said will belong to me. Don't, don't call anything unclean that I have called clean. And guess what can be clean in the eyes of God? Any single human person, because no one is beyond the redemptive work of the cross of Jesus Christ. No one. And if we tell ourselves or others that they are, we will, we will be blocked vessels. God will pass us over and find somebody else to communicate his mission to the city and to the world. So God sends Philip to Samaria, he sends Peter to Caesarea, and he sends Paul to Ephesus. Ephesus was largely considered to be the capital of the wealthiest region in the Middle East at that time. Acts 19 says, when Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, no, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And Paul's like, all right, we got some work to do. 
Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told people to believe in the one coming after him, that is Jesus. So in many ways, when you got baptized by John, you were getting baptized out of something. But when you got baptized in the name of Jesus, you were getting baptized into something. So the John's baptism, the fact that you acknowledge that you were wrong was incomplete. Jesus' baptism acknowledged that what's on the other side of you understanding that you're wrong, and that's forgiveness, redemption, spiritual resurrection in the person of Jesus. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. They spoke in other tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men at all. Peter entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months. Paul or, or entered the synagogue, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. That was a nickname for what it meant to follow Jesus. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. The Ephesians are baptized and then they are filled. Why? Because the baptism declares the choice and the Spirit declares the change. Some of you, you've already had that move of God in your life. You haven't yet been publicly baptized in the name of Jesus. Well, I want to encourage you to go to our information desk after the service and just write your name down and say, I would like to, get, I would like to sign up for the next round of baptisms. And may, maybe you haven't had either of those yet. Well, don't, don't wait for you to have this kind of emotional experience. Go ahead and get baptized. You know why? Because God doesn't care about the order. But God wants both of those to happen. He wants you to make the choice and he wants you to experience the change. Here's what I love about Ephesus. Ephesus was a cultural powerhouse. Ephesus had one of the largest theaters, one of the largest stadiums in its era. So people gathered in Ephesus for events. We also know that later in the story, there was a riot from craftsmen, artists, who were in the town of Ephesus. It was a major industry there. And when I look at these three cities, I realize that God had specific reasons for reaching each one of them. In Samaria, the message of Jesus transcends ethnic history. In Caesarea, the message of Jesus transcends the power dynamic. Why? The Jews didn't like the Romans. They were their sworn enemies. And that's exactly who God starts to reach in Caesarea, the Romans. And then finally, in Ephesus, the message of Jesus transcends the worldview gap. There are people, people in Ephesus were just as far afield as the people of Jerusalem could have been as possible. But God bridges every single one of those gaps. And some of you might say, well, this, that's, this is a great church history lesson. What in the world does that have to do with me? Let me argue this. Is it possible that in the city of Holland, in this region in Western Michigan, we have a microcosm of all three of these cities? So God was able to reach Samaria because the people in Samaria, Samaria at least had a religious baseline. There are a lot of people in this town who are not followers of Jesus, but there are many people in the Holland, Zealand, Hamilton area who are at least conversant in spiritual things. So a lot of people have walked away, but when we start the conversation about Jesus, usually we're not starting it absolutely from scratch. So I believe that Holland has a baseline the way that Samaria did when we start having conversations with people about Jesus. Talk about Caesarea. Caesarea was a port city. There was commerce that was happening in Caesarea from all over. 
And here in Holland, we have, we have industry, we have business, we have design, where, people, where we're ex exporting pro products to all over the world, and we have employees who are coming here from everywhere. And then finally, we have, Ephesus was this cultural center. And we, we, we've got like these, these events that bring in tourists and artists like Tulip Time, where we bring in people from all over. Holland is this very unique strategic beachhead for the gospel in our generation and in our time. And the question that we have to ask is, are, are we content to just kind of coast from here until eternity? Are we going to roll up our sleeves, completely dial in and say, God, you have put me in this season, in this zip code for a reason. Will you give me the grace to lean into it? Will you break my heart for the things that break yours? Will you give me the grace to be fully present, alert, and aware to people who don't yet know you? And let's not tell God how to move. Let's respond to how he is already moving. When we ask God for miracles, let's understand this. The miracle that God grants might not be for us. It might be for whoever is watching. So that people who are on the periphery of our lives could say, something is happening there that I can't explain. And now I'm curious. I want to share with you a story uh, from a dear friend of ours, Kat Marielke about an experience that she had when she was overseas. And for those of you who don't know, uh, Nate, who's our amazing worship leader, is the husband of Kat, and I want you to be able to hear her story in her own words. Let's watch this together. Before I was married to Nate, when I was in my early 20s, I lived for three years in Thailand, and I worked with the missionary team there. And the main focus of the women on the team was we were looking for ways to reach the prostitutes in our city. That's a big problem in Thailand. And um, we had gone to different hotels and worked with girls in there. And um, sometimes we would just get in our vehicles and drive around and kind of pray that God would lead us to specific girls. And there was this one area of the city that went down into a valley area and it was mainly desolate fields. But we saw activity down there, so we drove down there and sure enough it was very evident it was a red light area. And, um, but, but really like the low, low end, um, just these makeshift little shacks that these girls were working in, um, these men that would just come. And there was always girls sitting outside at these tables just waiting for customers. So we just thought, let's just pull over and drink some tea with them, start chatting with them. And um, eventually we would do that a couple times a week about me and one or two other ladies and um, just form a relationship. And in time, you know, start talking to them about the Lord, giving them some literature about Jesus. And um, the challenge there is you're talking about girls that were never valued in their life. They don't understand real love a lot of times it's their family that betrays them to selling them or um, bringing them to this um, lifestyle this workplace and um, obviously the customers that they have to deal with day in and day out just people that take from them they don't understand their self-worth and so we're coming in with the story of the gospel telling them Jesus loves you Jesus gave himself for you there's there's a value on your life and they would kind of sit and smile but that didn't really resonate and so around the same time, our team had come into a season where we really felt um, to just take a week and fast and pray. During that time of fasting, one of the couples had come to us and just said they really felt the Lord lay on their heart to take $1,000 that they had recently received and put it towards buying $1,000 worth of rice, bottled water, and um, basically like a couple inflatable boats. <laughs> 
and it sounded a little crazy because they weren't even really sure why, but both of them separately had felt that and when they told the team we were all very supportive of them and a thousand dollars will get you a lot of rice and water in America and a thousand American dollars will get you a lot of rice and water in Thailand. So we piled up our trucks with all these supplies and um, took a room in our ministry house, filled it from floor to ceiling with just rice and water in these inflatable boats. And um, there were times for sure that we were like, man, I wonder what this is for. And um, in the next coming weeks, it actually happened to happen that um, there was horrible rain that came. We had about three weeks of basically monsoon type rain and horrible flooding in the area. It was bad where we lived, but you could still kind of get out and around if you had a truck. Um, but we came to learn that the area of town where the girls were that we were ministering to, where they lived, you could not get in and out with a vehicle, kind of dipped down into this kind of like valley part of the city. Um, so we got ecstatic. <laughs> so we ended up piling a um, bunch of rice, bunch of water, the inflatable boats in our trucks, drove as close to the area as we could, and just piled all these supplies in our boats, got in the boats ourselves, and the water is higher than waist deep and um, in Thailand they have open sewage that so was just not clean it was a mess but we're we're just excited because we realized hey God spoke to us um, to meet this need for these women because where they were no one could get in or out and um, I'll never forget going into their street and then seeing a bunch of crazy Americans just coming you know with rice in tow and food and supplies and some of them I remember even just like lit up and were like jumping and clapping and um, we explained to them just kind of the story how we were in a time of prayer and God had put it on our hearts to buy all this food and that it was very clear that this food was for them. And so we could explain to them that there's a God who cares about you, that there's a God that in this time doesn't want you to be hungry, that you're valuable to God. And it did something so much more than our words could even say. It, it spoke to them and um, you just saw sobriety on these girls' faces and they were really soaking it in and just to have someone give to them and not take from them. Um, it just really helped the gospel become clearer to them and um, yeah, it was a really powerful time. Yeah, please. I, I love Kat being able to say that as a result of that team's fasting and prayer and faith, they were able to respond to a need that they didn't even know was going to exist. And when they, when they arrived and let these women know, you're not alone, God, care, God cares about your needs. What, what an amazing way to let them know that they were on God's radar. I, I think that most people, the darkest spiritual lie that they ever believe is that God has forgotten you and that you're all alone. And that those of us who have the privilege of sharing the gospel get to say, that's not true. God is with you and he's for you. And he's here right here. He's here right now. One of the images that I loved was that of Kat and her team getting into small inflatable boats and floating down the middle of the stream. <laughs> Reminded me of a story that I heard about some Irish monks called Celts a thousand years ago. They were trying to figure out what, what, what they are praying the same prayers. They were fasting and praying too and saying, God, we know we have this message. We have this gift to give. We, we don't know where to take it. So they built these tiny, these tiny boats 
maybe, maybe just six, eight feet in diameter across just very simple circles like floating bowls. And they got into these craft that were not at all seaworthy. And they didn't go out into a pond, they went out into the ocean. And they said, God, will your, will your wind, will your current take us where we're supposed to go? And these handful of monks, these little tiny boats, their inflatable rafts, landed them on the, on the coast of England where they were arrested by King Alfred's military. And when they were brought before the king, being accused of being spies, they said, who are you and why are you here? They said, we're followers of Jesus. We're on pilgrimage for the gospel. We cared not where we landed. You know who, can, you know who God can use? God can use people who want to know him and know his heart and who don't care where they land as, and are ready to share the messages of Jesus wherever their boat gets grounded. And for some of us, that, that's gonna mean getting on a, an actual boat, or for many of you, an actual plane. Some of you have had an opportunity to be on short-term trips. Some of you might wanna consider participating with Central this summer. Uh, one trip is gonna be a family trip in Mexico in July. Another is people are gonna be training leaders in Zambia also in July. There's a team that's already full that's going to Guatemala, but you can be in prayer for them. And then there are student trips that are happening in St. Louis and Chicago. I know the first short-term trip I took, I was, I was in middle school, and we had a chance to go to New York City, and then after that, I went to Mexico a few times, and then, that, and then over the last 23 years, I've been in three different continents doing these kind of trips, and every time I'm there, I'm reminded that God has a heart for a specific people group that he's reaching in a specific way, and God's going to do whatever it is that he needs to do to reach and connect with those people. And I know that when I come home, my, my vision for my neighborhood is different. And like Peter, I feel more encouraged, more inspired, more prone to take risks that I would not have otherwise taken. And like we said in the beginning of this series, mission is what happens anytime the message of Jesus crosses a boundary. Every time the message of Jesus crosses a boundary, it could be a class boundary or a gender boundary or a political boundary boundary or a high school rivalry boundary, whatever those lines are that are drawn in your life, anytime you bring the gospel across one of those lines, you are participating in mission. So last week, some new friends of ours recommended a particular um, ethnic restaurant to us, and Kelly and I took the kids there last night. We were the only Anglos in that joint. Kelly's like, I think people are laughing at us. I'm like, they probably are. It's okay. We're hilarious. But you know what, it was, it, was so, it was so good for us to be able to say, you know what? Eight minutes away from where we live is a different nation, it's a different people group. And, and if we're not in the space that they're doing their lives, how would we ever have opportunity to give away the gift that God has given? And how do we receive the wisdom that God wants us to give us from them as well? My prayer for us is that God would shatter the boxes that we've built for ourselves. God will give us grace to, to build bridges across these man-made chasms. And like Kat and her team, we would be drawn to our knees to fast and pray and say, God, will you, will you show me what thing it is that you want me to do to move your kingdom forward in this zip code in my lifetime, even if it doesn't make sense? Because the truth is, buying inflatable boats when there's no rain and a thousand dollars worth of rice, it doesn't make sense. Peter going into a home of Gentiles didn't make sense. 
Philip showing up in Samaria, Paul showing up in Ephesus, those things didn't make sense, they weren't logical. But that, that's where the Spirit was moving. And if we, if we want to be followers of Jesus, we must indeed follow him as he moves. And make no mistake, he is indeed moving. So let's pray. Let's ask God to move again, not just around us, not just for us, but through us for the good of others. Father God, I thank you that you love us more than we know. And there is, there is not a single person on this earth that you don't care for. Not a single person on this planet that is beyond the scope, beyond the reach of your redeeming, restoring, resurrecting power. And Lord, I pray that for those of us who know you, you would remind us that we have this privilege, this obligation, this joy of giving what we have been given away. And for those of us who are joining us online or here in this room who don't yet know you, God, I pray that you would remind us that even right now as we hear this last song, I pray that you would, you would speak our name. You would, you would let us know that no matter what we've done or what we've been through or what's been done to us, we matter to you. And you came to this earth and walked down our streets so that you could know our struggles and our pain and our hurts. And though you never failed, you know all of our failures and love us still. So God, give us the grace to take that first step. Some of us need to take that first step home to you. And some of us need to take that first step into a tiny inflatable boat to be blown wherever the winds of the Spirit would take us. But wherever we are, Give us the grace to believe that you will meet us on the other side of that step. We pray these things in Jesus' name.